And it was exactly to show society in, in general that you can become this ballerina from an environment like this because this is my environment. This is where I came from. Welcome to Midlife Mixtape, the podcast. I'm Nancy Davis Coe, and we're here to talk about the years between being hip and breaking one. Where do I belong? Tell me why I'm here and what's taking this long. When can I move on? Before we get to this week's episode, I want to mention that today, Tuesday, September 25th, is National Voter Registration Day. Are you registered? Are you sure? How about your family, friends, and neighbors? There are events taking place nationwide today to make it easy to register. I'm heading over to the UC Berkeley campus this afternoon to register students. And if you want to get involved, go to nationalvoterregistrationday.org and see where help may be needed near you. Because you know what? Representative democracy isn't unless everybody exercises their right to vote. Hey everyone, how are you? Thanks for tuning into the show where we help one another careen around our midlife speed bumps through inspiration, honesty, and a big fat dollop of Gen X's famously sardonic sense of humor. Before we get to today's guest, I have big news, really big news. You guys, I got a book deal. See, when I turned 50, I decided to write 50 thank you letters to the people, places, and things that had played a part in making my first five decades so fortunate. And it turned out to be a life-saving project during a very turbulent year, so I am thrilled to announce that Running Press will be publishing my book, Thanks for Everything, Cultivating Happiness One Letter of Gratitude at a Time, at the end of 2019. There's a post over at midlifemixtape.com with more detail if you're interested. I have a deadline of November 15th, yes, 2018, for the manuscript, so I am living in the writing cave until then. But, you know, writing those letters was one of the most meaningful and happiness-building things that I've ever done, and I really want to make it easy for other people to replicate the project. And I feel really lucky to have found a publisher to help me spread the word. So, speaking of grateful, I was thrilled when today's guest agreed to be on the show. Aisha Ash has been a professional ballet dancer for 13 years. After attending the legendary School of American Ballet, she joined the New York City Ballet at age 18, where she remained for eight years dancing numerous soloist and principal roles. Aisha then joined the legendary Béjart Ballet in Switzerland as a soloist. After enjoying success in Europe, she returned to the U.S. in 2005, where she joined Alonzo King's Lines Ballet. Aisha has been featured in Dance Magazine, Point Magazine, Bazaar, Marie Claire, The New York Times, and The San Francisco Chronicle. Aisha was the principal dance double for Zoe Saldana in the movie Center Stage. You know, there are many things I loved about talking to Aisha, but probably my favorite is that when we finally got around to the first concert question, it actually took us a while. She answered it as any natural dance performer would do from the point of view of the stage. And even when I rephrased it, she couldn't quite shift out of the mindset of ballet and dancing. So I found that incredibly endearing. You know, ballerinas don't wish each other good luck by saying break a leg for obvious reasons. What they say is merde, which is the French word for shit. So come along with me, wish me merde, and here's my interview with Aisha Ash. 
Aisha Ash, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. Well, you and I are a couple of Rochester girls, and I know this because I was home visiting my mom, reading the Rochester Democrat and Chronicle, boy, it must have been at least a year ago, and saw some beautiful images in there of this African-American ballerina on the street corners in Rochester where you don't necessarily see a ballerina hanging out so much. So tell me about that. That was, uh, that was a few years ago, actually. And what's really funny is you know, that article came out about a year and a half or so ago uh, with that image. It was only recently that suddenly that particular image, that particular article decided to go viral. I'm not sure how that happens. Well, you're certainly going viral in midlife mixtape land because I recently got an email from a listener named Tina. Hey, Tina, shout out to Tina, who suggested that I look into interviewing you because she said she's doing really interesting things in terms of challenging socioeconomic and racial norms around ballet. So I went and looked you up and I'm like, wait a minute. I know that ballerina from Rochester. That's right. Upstate New York, Monroe County. (laughs) So where did you take ballet? So I first started at a, we call them Dolly Dinkle Studios. I don't know what they call them anymore, but it was just a very small studio with jazz, tap and lyrical and some ballet. And it was called the Joyce Winters School of Dance. And it was right up the street from me. And I think my mom said initially I, you know, started a you know, one community center class and then kind of made my way to the other side of the block to Joyce Winter School of Dance. And then I began to take ballet more seriously because with jazz and tap and lyrical, you do a lot of competitions and that's sort of these competitive dance studios um, where you just go around and you do lots of competitions. And I saw my sights for Broadway. That was going to be something I wanted to do. And then I began doing these competitions and I would win a lot and I got very bored with that. And it just felt very lonely. And, you know, I would go out with me and my mom going, doing these competitions. And I, it didn't pose as much of a challenge as ballet did. And so it took a, a guest teacher coming into my studio, telling my mom that I had some promise for ballet. And if I wanted to get better at the other forms of dance, that I should pursue ballet more seriously. And I was resistant to that um, because it wasn't something that. I was interested in. I wanted to do Broadway. How old were you at that point? At that point, I was around 10 and a half or 11, which is, which is a little bit late uh, for ballet. It's, it's, it's certainly late for somebody like myself who didn't have a natural facility for ballet. I think if you have already a very natural facility for that art, it could be a little bit easier. But for me, it was, it was a challenge. And I, you know, I continued fighting against my facility my, my entire career. But the reason why I decided to, you know, really push for ballet was one, it was it was a challenge. And two, as I started pursuing ballet more heavily, my mom started to notice that kids were going away for summer camps. Now, this is something that you do if you see ballet as your career path, that you leave your home studio and you go away for the summer, oftentimes to a very big school, a very well-known school with, you know, world-renowned teachers. These are the summer ballet intensives, right? Exactly. I'm a mom of two ballerinas, so I know oh, from I know from those. <laughs> exactly, the the intensives. I always say camps just because for, you know, the layman that just gives them a better idea of what it is, you know, that we sort of go away for, you know, a few weeks at a time. And we as she began to inquire about that, she was warned that as a woman of color, as a girl of color that it would be challenging for me in the ballet world. And when I heard that, that's when I was like, I have to do this. Give me a little resistance I can fight against. Exactly. And the reason why is I sort of developed this at a very young age because in Rochester, I was part of the urban suburban program. 
And that's where the inner city kids are bussed out to suburban schools because you know the families feel that the education is better. And from a very young age, I encountered a lot of difficulties with that and, and misunderstandings about people of color, people from environments like my own. And I sort of learned to combat this in a peaceful way. Um, but it just sort of became a mission of mine, even from a very young age, to sort of dis, you know, teach others that you know, stereotypes are not true, that they don't, they certainly don't speak truth to an entire population of people. And when I heard this about ballet, it was just a natural, a natural flow for me to then take this into my art and to show through my art that women of color and people from environments like my own are much more than a stereotype. And what better way to do that than being a princess and a fairy on stage every night? Right. And so that's what really, I think, thrusted me even more into the ballet world and, and really pushing because, in, you know, I, I love dance. I love all forms of dance. There's not one that I enjoy more than the other. And I certainly didn't have a favoritism to ballet versus, you know, jazz or modern or tap or as long as I'm moving and I'm dancing and I'm creating art with my body, I was happy. But what really pushed me towards ballet was that aspect and the fact that it was a challenge for me in, in lots of ways. And, and I liked that. Okay, and I want to talk more about that. But we managed to skip straight over the first question that we always ask on the Midlife Mixtape podcast, which is, what was your first concert and what were the circumstances? I think the first memory that I have was just a recital. And it was a recital with Joyce Winter School of Dance, that first school that I started with. I'm not sure if this is my very first performance, but it's one of the first real memories that I have, that it was a tap number. And it was uh, Put Another Nickel In, a very old song. And I remember I was just this blue costume with white trim and a big white bow across my stomach and a huge white bow on the top of my head. And I remember these white tights. And I remember white tap shoes, which I thought was the coolest thing because we always wore black tap shoes for class. So the fact that I had to get white ones, that was super exciting. What about sitting in the audience? Do you have any formative memories of being in the audience? Oh, wow. The first one that comes to mind is Cats. And that was in Rochester. That was my, my very first one. And I, I wonder if that sticks in my mind because my mom was so angry that one of my brothers fell asleep and the tickets were so expensive and she was so angry that he slept. Um, but I just was fascinated by magical Mr. Mistopheles. And I was just it was awesome. So that's one of the fondest memories I have. And one of the first memories I have of sitting in the audience and seeing something, which is strange, it wasn't a ballet, it was actually Broadway, because that's where that's what I wanted to do. And that made a big impression on you. I could see why. I want to pivot a little bit. Because I have this niggling question, I've always wanted to ask a professional ballerina, how do you stay positive about a field that considers you retirement age when you're 32? You know, you by the time most professional ballerinas hit 40, that's considered a really long run. So how do you think about that? And how do you sort of mentally prepare for the fact that you're going to retire before you hit the age of 40? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question and one that varies depending on your personality. It's, it's very individual. I know for myself, I didn't, I don't really feel like I did the normal retirement through my career because I, I, I retired rather early. Like I still felt like I was almost reaching this point where I was learning so much and observing, absorbing so much. And if I would have hanged on a few more years that I really 
felt like I could have elevated my dancing much more that I still, towards the tail end, the fact that I had danced in Europe and worked with so many different choreographers and learning different techniques that I felt like I was just beginning to learn. Um, and then I retired. Right. I mean, we talk a lot about that on the show that by the time you're our age and you're younger than me, but I'm just, I just mean in general in this sort of 40 and up, that's when you get the real benefit of your experience, of your knowledge. But unfortunately in ballet, that's also when they start putting you out to pasture in some level. Yeah. And so I didn't, I, I hadn't reached that point where I started to see that in my career because I left before that began to happen where, you know, I started to, as you say, be put out to pasture. So I didn't experience that. I, I will say that I think, you know, going into the career, you know that already. And I think, you know, the gen- my generation and even the generations now, um, they realize they realize that and they start preparing already from the beginning. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of dancers are going to school part time. You get you have a lot of dancers who are showing interest in Broadway, um, where a lot of times you can last a little bit longer than a ballerina. You have dancers modeling, you have dancers going into acting. There's been dancers who've gone into real estate, who've become lawyers, who decide to join the medical field. Wait, the couple who runs my daughter's ballet studio are real estate agents. I did not realize that was a career track. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there's a couple that I know who've become realtors. And I think... Maybe it's the same couple. I don't know. (laughs) Well, I think it's, you know, it's you enter the craft already knowing that your career is short and you start preparing, you know, you don't wait. Many times you're not waiting to the last minute to go, okay, why well, do? Um, and I think that this kind of happened, you know, back in the day, but it's, it's not really happening so much now, or they're, they're already starting to build their resume for choreographing and for teaching, or they already have their sights on, you know, one day I want to open up my own school or company. And they start already crafting and working on that, even as they're approaching that sort of quote unquote, retirement age of a dancer. Well, that makes me feel better. You go in kind of knowing you have a limited shelf life. Yeah. And that doesn't mean that that's the case for everybody. I know, you know, I'm for sure that there's even in the younger generations that there's some that, you know, don't want to think about it, can't think about it. And they have a very hard time leaving. And that's, and I've seen that, um, you know, in in generations, you know, older than mine, and even Mm -hmm. sometimes in my own generation, and that's hard. It's very, very hard to see, you know, the ones that just can't let go. And when it was time for your second act, you turned to the persistent problem of a lack of representation of black and brown bodies in ballet. And this is, of course, your Swan Dreams project. So can you start by describing what it is and how you decided to put your energy there? The Swan Dreams project, in essence, is trying to dispel the myths and stereotypes that exist around women of color. And I use that through the vehicles of my art form, which is ballet and photography. And uh, it started off as just a pure photography uh, project where I just, you know, wanted to put out images in my community and communities like those from which I come from. And just to inspire others to, to see something other than the charactered images that we constantly see time and time again on the screen you know, I just felt that I was tired of being told one story of who I am and who my people are and what we are and what we can become. And I think that dehumanizes us. I think that, you know, like all human beings and and women, especially that we are multidimensional, that, you know, we have moments of sadness and fear and vulnerability and, you know, feel shy and timid. And, you know, we're not just strong and fierce and 
while we have that side of us, that's not the only side that we have. And I think a lot of conversation because of the rise of Misty Copeland, there's been a lot of conversation now and, and pushing for diversity in ballet. And I think that while that's fantastic, I think the other side that we're not addressing is that what happens once these women get there? Um, will they be typecast? Will they be uh, just assigned the roles of, you know, the warrior princess and the the more exotic, more modern roles? You know, will they be the Juliet? Will they be the Swan Lake, the Swan Princess? And we've been seeing these these things happening, and that people have been breaking that and becoming the Swan Princess and becoming the Juliets, but it's not as much as I would like to see. And I think that that's a bigger society issue. It's not just ballet. I think is you know does society as a whole when one thinks of a princess or a fairy or queen, you know, do they does their mind go to a woman of color? And I think a really a great example of this is somebody a friend good friend of mine just sent me uh, some little YouTube link of an opera singer being introduced to little kids. Oh my gosh, I saw that clip. It was so sweet. Isn't that fantastic? I was like, that's like my project. That's what I'm trying to do, right? And it's just fantastic. And, you know, she was a Black opera singer. And, you know, one of the the young kids that was talking with her, she said, do I look like a princess? And she's like, well, I mean, you do, but certainly not that that I have ever seen represented before. And I just was like, exactly, exactly. It's like, well, now that you're standing here, yeah, of course you look like a princess, but you know, be, if I were to think of one, like I would never draw you. But now that you're in front of me, like yes, of course, you know, you look like a princess, and that's the whole point is to get, especially at a young right. age, for them to be exposed and to see that, and for especially, you know, young kids of color, minorities, for them to see themselves like that—that that we're not just, you know, the video girls, we're not just the loud, angry, fierce, strong—and those are attributes that are great. But that's not all we are. You know, we are multidimensional. We have more than one story. And I just wanted to put that out there. The project sort of, I got into it kind of by by accident, I feel. I had already well retired and I had given birth to my first child, which was my daughter. And I was just sitting on the sofa one day. I had, when I retired, I retired cold turkey. Not many dancers do that. I just was like, done, tired. Like I was going into momhood full time, you know helping out at the preschool if I can, you know, once they started school, volunteering at school, like that's what I was doing. I wasn't taking classes anymore and, you know, I would teach on and off, but I had really distanced myself. And I was watching TV and she was just circling around the coffee table. She was quite young and an image came on the screen. I don't know if it was a video or an advertisement. And it was just that stereotyped character image that I was previously speaking of. And I became very frustrated by that. And I, you know, was looking at my daughter, you know, I started reflecting back on my career and that this particular image, this is what I was fighting against. This is what I don't want society to keep seeing time and time again. And that's the only thing that they keep seeing. That was my frustration is that this is the only thing that we keep showing, we keep putting out there, that this is the only image that keeps getting pushed. And we are so much more. And that's what I was fighting for in my career to show that. And I got, became really frustrated and, and I felt very helpless and hopeless and thinking, what can I do? You know, I'm certainly not going back to dancing 12 hour, hours a day, six days a week. My mom, I'm very happy for that. I didn't have any issues of, you know, being jealous that the younger dancers are there and there. I was very happy. I, it was my choice to, to stop my career and very comfortable with that. But I figured 
there has to be something I can do. And it made me think back to when I was at the school, there was an image on in the dormitories of the School of American Ballet where I went. And it was of then when I was in the school, she was in the company. It was the one Black female in the company whose name was Andrea Long. And there was an image of her in a performance or classroom. I can't remember, but I just remember her because it was a black and white image. And the uniform at the School of American Ballet is a black leotard and pink tights. And so you just see her beautiful dark skin really coming through this black and white image. And, you know, she's the only woman of color. And whenever there were days that I was down, I I just felt that I couldn't go on anymore, that I felt very lonely and isolated and that nobody understood the extra challenges that I had. I would look at that image and it would just empower me. And I would look and say, you know, for sure she's gone and going through these struggles. And if she can do it, I can do it. And it would give me hope. And that was just an image. That's it. Just an image. And how powerful it was for me. And so I thought, exactly, that's what I can do. I can go back home. I can take it, you know, take some images of myself and my tutor just in my community, because that was very important for me to be in my community. And it was important that I told the photographer, I don't want just beautiful ballet images, like, look how high her leg is, you know, look at her beautiful grand jeté and how high she gets in the air. That's amazing. I really wanted the images to spark a conversation, dialogue to evoke some emotion. And I'll put some of these images on the show notes page. And you can also go to swandreamsproject.org to see more. But they're lovely. That's Aisha completely tutued out, <laughs> dancing in front of a barbershop or dancing on a street corner with two little girls who look like they're completely fascinated by this beautiful vision in front of them. And it was exactly to also show society in, in general that you can become this ballerina from an environment like this, because this is my environment. This is where I came from. So what are all the different components of the project? I mean, there's the photos that seem to continue to have a life of their own. And didn't you just do a workshop in Rochester? Yeah, so that that's really funny. And it, it really has taken on a life of its own, because that was the only thought I had with the project, is that I wanted to take images and sort of blast them all over Rochester and then realized that that was way too expensive and I absolutely could not do that. Um, and so I started throwing them up on Facebook and I'm no celebrity. I'm, you know, I didn't expect it to go far, but it was my own personal small thing that I felt like I could do. Like anytime I got frustrated and saw a negative image, I was going to put, you know, something positive on my Facebook page just to feel good, you know, that I, even if I touch one person and then they began to take a life on their own. And I had no interest in right, selling the images. Right. I had no interest in creating a website or this big project, like none of that. And it was the response that I got back from the community, which turned this thing into what it is now. And, and still, it first started off with people requesting to buy the images. So I thought, okay, I'd sell the images and you know, use the proceeds to help organizations that are bigger than me and actually doing something and that can do something because they have the resources. Then that started turning into schools and other organizations asking me to come and speak and share my career and this project with their kids. And then I started to see that more was needed and that more was needed besides just me going out in a tutu because I'm certainly, you know, getting too old to be out there in a tutu dancing. And, you know, I just... Okay, Aisha, hold up a second. (laughs) I think you have a little ways to go before you have to throw a towel over it, okay? I've seen your picture. Well, I mean, it's like I can 
still get out there with the kids and do splits and PK turns and they want me to do cartwheels and back bends and like that kind of stuff is fun and that's fine. I can do that, but I'm certainly not going out there and doing like, you know, fuates and Swan Lake type stuff. It's that's not <laughs> happening. Um, so it's like, it's, it's good enough for, but it's after a while that's going to get, that's going to become, I, you know, I don't want to put my point shoes on anymore. I'm not doing this stuff anymore. That's when I started to develop this idea of creating a camp because this project for me is more than just ballet, although that is a vehicle I certainly use. Um, And so I pitched that to the commissioner of Rochester. And the idea of the camp is to impart everything that I've learned by having the wonderful opportunity of having a career as a ballet dancer, imparting that onto my community and these kids without having to have a career as a ballerina. And that, that is not only ballet classes were taught, we taught fitness. Uh, we had yoga classes. We had nutrition classes. These are all things I had to learn on my own um, when I was told to lose weight at a very young age. We had etiquette classes. That was also something that you know I had to kind of learn through trial and error. My mom taught me a great deal, but still, you know, going to like rolled out red carpet black tie events at the near at you know Lincoln Center Plaza was no comparison when you're sitting at these gala black tie events and there's you know three and four cups on one side and, you know, five and six and seven, you know, spoons, knives and forks. And you're like, what's mine? And, you know, you're very, you're a very young kid. And so this is, and I felt that once I had exposure to all of this, that it empowered me and having that, that sense of empowerment of that, if I was invited to one of these gala events, I would never be intimidated, you know, because it's, I've been there, I've experienced it. I know what to expect. And I would never say no because I was insecure and intimidated because I didn't know what to expect. And that empowers you. And so that I wanted to give to the kids. We also ended with journaling, which I created journals for the girls um, where they could talk about, we had every day we had a different theme, whether that's joy or beauty, uh, dreams, and you know, having a time for the kids to reflect, to write, to think, to ponder. And for me, that was really important. Uh, journaling was something I did throughout my career but having a place to, you know, sometimes you're not able to express things in words to be able to write out those feelings and emotions and, and to see that on paper. What are my dreams? Let me really think about that. Let me see that on paper. What's stopping me from my dreams? What am I doing today or what can I do tomorrow to make that come true? Um, and actually not only verbalizing that, writing that down and seeing that on paper does something. So again, if you guys want to see some great images and video from the Swan Dreams Project, go to swandreamsproject.org or check out the Facebook page. So Aisha, in one of the interviews I read with you, you talked about the fact that you're hearing a lot from older women of color who were interested in ballet or would have loved to pursue it, but encountered some of the same kinds of resistance that you had to overcome. And it breaks my heart because those women, who knows what would have happened if they'd gotten into a supportive environment, which is sort of what Swan Dreams Project is designed to create. So what is your message for women who may find themselves at age 40 or 50 wishing that they had pursued ballet, but never having had the opportunity? I'm so glad you asked that because it's been a recent, um, not predicament of mine, but something that I have been thinking about for a little bit. And I feel like that, you know, I believe everything happens for a reason and the universe really sends you lots of signs. And I feel that that has been a sign that keeps hitting me over the head and I keep ignoring. You can keep ignoring it, but it's going to keep hitting you over the head, you know. Oh yeah. And it does. It keeps hitting me harder and harder. (laughs) And I think when I, this thing started in 2011, that was my first shock was I was thinking it was going to be a lot of young dancers or, you know, sort of 
uh, maybe in their 20s, you know, just kind of reaching out and it's really touching them. And instead, it was much older women that were writing saying, you know, I'm in tears looking at these images and it just coming to me with their stories of how they wanted to dance or they did dance and they let it go because it was just too much and being feeling alone and feeling different. And, and this continues to keep happening. And then I decided just on my own to start a, an adult introduction to ballet class. And this came from a mother watching class. I was watching a class one day and a mom was sitting next to me and she was talking about her interest in ballet and how she went to take a beginner class and it was absolutely not beginner. I mean, these were women that had that had taken ballet class for years and then now that they're old, they never became a ballerina. They didn't, you know, obviously, you know, had stopped and now are coming back to it. And they clearly knew all the language and what to do and they still had all the attire. Right. And she's like, you know, I just want to be in like my Lululemons and like socks and just, you know, learn what's going on. And I thought, you know what? That doesn't exist. When I started the class, I started getting these women who were not only just enjoying learning ballet and experiencing what that feels like, but that were being touched in, in so many ways. I mean, I had one woman who came to me in tears after class one day and said, you, you just make, and this one was like, you know, in her sixties and just came to me and said, you know, you just make me feel like I can do it. Aww. And, you know, another who was a very good friend of mine who, who was a writer and had, you know, kind of given it up a little bit, not given it up, but, you know, just wasn't pursuing it as much as she wanted. And the fact that ballet was teaching her confidence and how to hold herself and shoulders back and down. And she felt that she was walking like that in regular life, thinking about her posture and how she noticed that that suddenly started give, giving her confidence that she felt that she had lost and got back to her writing again. And she talks about how you know, the ballet world, she felt very rejected because of her body in this, but she just wanted to do it. It wasn't that I have to be in a company or I have to just still let me feel that I, I can be here and do it. And I think that's what my class was giving to a lot of these women. And they all have stories of feeling rejected by the ballet world, right? Uh, rejected in their classroom because no, you don't have the right body. You don't have the right feet. You don't want, so just stop. And it's like, well, what about those who want to do it just because they love it and they just want to enjoy this art form? And so I feel that this project, while I keep trying to focus on the young kids, there is an adult component. And one of my friends told me, this one who's a writer said, you know, I feel that your duty also, Aisha, is to heal the swan dreams that died in a lot of these women. And that just gave me chills because it's called the Swan Dreams Project. And I'm going, wow, I never thought of that. And I'm in the process of teaching free classes in East San Jose, which is a more economically challenged area of San Jose. And one of the classes, the class that I'm going to teach happens to be for adults because the, there's already a kid's class and the hour that I could teach, they couldn't do two kids classes back to back. So here I am with the adults again. And of course, I'm going to leave it open to, you know, making it mommy and me friendly. Uh, for the kids to come in and, and work out with mom. I think that's called momentum, Aisha. Yeah. And so I really do feel like that there's a lot of connection that I've made and that I have with adults and helping them to feel included in this world. And I think because of my project, because of my story, being a minority, seeing that I'm also different and you know I was only one of when I was in the company, that they feel this connection with me. And they know that I understand that feeling of feeling different or feeling outed. Right. And that's why I resonate with them. And they enjoyed my classes. And, um, and I made them feel included. I made them feel like you can do it because I feel that they can. 
And I would tell them, look, we're not getting ready to audition for the Paris Opera, right? You know, we're not preparing Yet. for... for you, you don't know. know. Yeah. One of your dancers may really surprise you. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. I have two more questions for you. And one is the one we always end the podcast with. But first, because I have a real live ballerina on the phone, I'm going to ask a question for a friend. Is there a number of times that you can watch the Nutcracker at which point it becomes acceptable, perhaps even recommendable to sleep during the Sugar Plum Fairies solo? <laughs> no! Come on! No. Absolutely not! Sometimes I'm four performances in on a weekend in December and I'm exhausted and I just need a little tiny no. bit of shut-eye. Oh, are you kidding? Not the I've just outed myself as the worst ballet mom ever. (laughs) You know what it is? I have to teach you this variation so you'll have a different appreciation for it. And now every time you see it, you'll be clenching your butt cheeks together. (laughs) (laughs) Thinking, oh my God, hold that, hold that pose, hold it. (laughs) If you say so. You know what? That's going to be, that is going to be our challenge. And you should do, you know, now you have this podcast, you should do a special video episode of me teaching you. The sugar plum oh, fairy. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. My my <laughs> listeners will really love to tune in for that. <laughs> that would be excellent. My daughter studying abroad will insist on live streaming it. <laughs> okay. Last question. What one piece of advice do you wish you could go back and tell yourself, or would you give someone younger than you? Oh, that's a that's a really easy one. Oh. Is to to be kinder to myself. I was way way too hard on myself, and I still am. I, I wish I had someone to to stress that a little bit more. As artists, we are we are our own worst critic. But I feel like I took that like to the next level. <laughs> like it was it was way too much, and it was definitely detrimental uh, to myself, to my self esteem. I think even to myself as an artist, that it hindered a lot of my creativity and a lot of my growth. So that I wish somebody would have told me, and that that whenever I get students, I really try to drill that because I. I think that we we can get in our own way way too often. Well, I hope you're being kind to yourself now because you're doing wonderful work that benefits so many deserving people. And I encourage you guys to go check out swandreamsproject.org. And Aisha, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much. Just a couple of quick reminders. If you're in the Bay Area, come on out to a great good place for books in Oakland this Thursday, September 27th, when I interview my friend, author Janelle Hanchett, about her memoir, I'm Just Happy to Be Here, a memoir of renegade mothering. You can find all the details on the sidebar at midlifemixtape.com or over on the Midlife Mixtape Facebook page. You'll also find details in both places about my next guest DJ gig at the Cat Club in San Francisco on Saturday, October 13th. It's always an 80s music night, but that night we're going heavy on The Cure and Queen, so you know it's going to be good. Do you have any suggestions of what I should play? If so, email them to me at dj at midlifemixtape.com. Leave me a voicemail at midlifemixtape.com by clicking on the blue bar on the right-hand side. And you can, of course, find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at midlifemixtape. To cop a song title from The Cure, thanks so much for listening, all of you people out here with me in the in-between days. Hope you have a wonderful week. I wanna be, be, be I wanna be 
I wanna be free by whatever.